1 Samuel, open up your Bibles. 1 Samuel, we're gonna be in chapter 18. I know we did 16 on Sunday. This next Sunday, we will do 17. We're skipping. We're gonna skip 17, go on to 18, and uh, if you'd like to hear about David and Goliath, come on back on Sunday. We'll deal with chapter 17 on Sunday morning. But we're gonna pick up, uh, actually toward the end of chapter 17, Jesus said in Revelation 22, 16, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Nobody else in history or eternity is both the root and the descendant, only Jesus. So Jesus, we're, we're coming to you asking that you will bless the teaching of your word tonight. And we, uh, as I prayed to you a moment ago, we are in awe of you, in awe of your grandeur, in awe of your intimacy, and we are in awe of just who you are. There is no one like you. So we bless your name and we ask, Holy Spirit of the living God, that you would come and teach us these things tonight in Jesus' name, amen. To me, the fact that Jesus is the root and the descendant makes David the most significant person in the Bible outside of Jesus. And I'm not saying he's my favorite character, although I love David. I love what we learn from him and about him. And he certainly is an amazing and fascinating uh, man after God's heart. But um, he is so significant because of this connection. I don't know of anybody else. Who, anybody else that Jesus uh, shares a name with? Jesus Christ, son of David? Or as I said on Sunday, Yeshua bar David or Yeshua ben David. Now I wanna clear something up because I think there was a little confusion. I know there was on my part. I had been studying and thinking about son of David, son of David, right? And so I, I went back and I noticed that during first service, and I don't know if I did this second, I think I shifted to just to ben David, son of ben in the Hebrew, ben David. But in uh, first service, I know I started out saying bar David, did anybody catch that? And write down Bar David, and then wait, wait, now he's saying Ben. Did he say Bar before? What, what, what's going on here? So let, let me just make it clear, they're both right. So Bar David is the Hebrew Aramaic. So the Hebrew language that was influenced by the Aramaic language later on. Bar David means son of David, or yes. Uh, so Bar David works, Ben David works, both of them work because Jesus is, in essence, he is the forebear and the son of David. He is Bar David, he is Ben David. So if you wanna do it in Hebrew, Ben David. If you wanna do Hebrew Aramaic, Bar David. Got it? Uh, and it's interesting, uh, Blake was asking me a few minutes ago, now why, why are you like doing specifically uh, speaking Hebrew names like as they were heard, is there a reason for that? And, and I said, well, yeah, um, because I want my name to be spoken as it is heard. I mean, can you imagine 100 years from now, someone's reading about me, not that that would ever happen. Uh, Jesus is coming, I think, next week. But, but can you imagine someone referring to me as Rish? That's not my name, my name's Rick. Call me by my name, you know? And so, so I, I like to hear the names sometimes because as with all of us, we have heard these names and we've heard them anglicized for so long, we're just so used to them. So you're gonna hear me go back and forth between David and David, Jonathan and Yoni, or Yonatan, uh, Shaul, Saul. I, I'm, I'm gonna do that, but at least when we come to a person the first time, I try to give you the Hebrew sense of the name. Jesse is Yeshai, Yeshai. In the Hebrew, David's father, Jesse. We've called him Jesse all our lives. Well, he's not Jesse James, the outlaw. He's Yeshai, the Bethlehemite. So 
just so you understand that. But either way, the real focus of all this is Yeshua, or if you want to say in Greek, Jesus, or if you want to say in English, Jesus. But it is the son of David. He is the one we're looking at. Now, in 1 Samuel 16, we saw David anointed for the first time. Remember, he has three anointings. We only saw the first one, and he's not yet anointed as king. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit. The intention is, yes, he will be king, but this is not the anointing for him to rule because he's not going to rule immediately. In fact, it's gonna be 17 plus years before David comes to that point. Uh, but he was absolutely anointed, as the Bible tells us in chapter 16, oh, long about verse 13, with the spirit of the Lord, he came mightily upon David from that day forward. So he, the might of the Holy Spirit is now upon David, we saw that, and soon after that anointing, we don't know how long, but, but rather quickly, David is going to show some of that Holy Spirit power and might in chapter 17 by besting Goliath. And again, I'm gonna save that for Sunday, but the shepherd boy kills the giant. For tonight, we're gonna skip on past that story, so you need to keep that in mind that this is now behind us for our teaching tonight. There is a headless Goliath carcass behind us, okay? But picking up at the end of chapter 17, if you look at verse 55, I wanna clear something else up before going on. It says, now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, by your life, O king, I do not know. The king said, you inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned, David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. How do you have a conversation like this? This gigantic bloody head is hanging from David, swinging back and forth, you know, like a box of cookies or something. I don't know. It's weird. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Yeshai, the Bethlehemite. So this is one of those things people say, wow, there's a discrepancy here. Because back in chapter 16, we already know that David is playing, he's playing his harp in the court of Saul, right? So that's already happened. Why is Saul asking who this guy is and who his dad is when he already sent to Jesse, Yeshai, to get David to come and play in his court? And, and, and there are a lot of people, a lot of commentators who, who pull out these things and try to criticize and say, here is a serious problem. Note what he says, Saul says, who is the father? Back in verse 55, do you... Whose son is this young man? He doesn't say who is David. He knows who David is. And what's been happening since David's anointing and since Saul ultimately called for him because now Saul's starting to lose it, right? And he called for David to come and, and be a musician in his court and Saul really took a, a liking to him. The scripture says Saul loved him and said, you can be my armor bearer. What's happening is David at this point is going back and forth. He's going to Saul's court, he's playing the harp, he's serving Saul, but he's also living at home in Bethlehem. It's a six mile walk across a valley, it's not far. Um, and, and so in fact, maybe even closer than that because we're talking about Gabeah. So he's going back and forth between Bethlehem and Gabeah to serve Saul and then to continue to serve his father and to shepherd sheep there in Bethlehem. This is what he's doing. 
He says, whose son is this young man? Now, now I want you to think this through with me. Aside from that explanation, would you remember the name of the father of a musician in your court? I can barely remember my name, much less many of yours. I, this, you know, I, I think sometimes we look at and we study the scripture and we forget these are real people. This is, if, if everything in scripture was, was perfectly cleaned up, then I would question its truthfulness. If it was squeaky clean, but you see real life here and you see Saul going, okay, the young man, he knows it's David. Who, whose son is he? Who's the guy? Why is he asking? Well, there's another reason you'll find out in a bit. And that is, well, I might as well go ahead and tell you, and that is that the man who kills Goliath was promised riches and he was promised that his family would be free meaning probably from taxation and, and service in Israel. Riches and, and freedom and a daughter of Saul for a wife. So Saul had promised this. David now delivers. He's <laughs> swinging the head of Goliath. And so Saul needs to find out, well, okay, who is this guy's dad? What is his pedigree? What's his lineage? What's his background? That's what Saul is trying to figure out. So as you come to the end, just remember, anytime you come to something that looks like a, a strange discrepancy, like, well, Saul knew him here, how come he can't know him here? Understand that the scripture is always true. And these are real people who don't always know in linear fashion exactly who someone is or why, you know? And so I, I think it actually adds to the, the truthfulness of the scriptures that we see Saul trying to get more information on this young man, David. But that's where we pick up the story. Chapter 18, verse one. It came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan, remember Jonathan, Yanni? The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. So now David is staying in the court of Saul. Now he's not going back home, okay? So up until now, it's been a back and forth. That verse right there tells us, okay, he's, he's been doing this, this shifting of responsibilities. Now, he did not let him return to his father's house. Verse three, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt, Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse nine tells us two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Jonathan and David, David and Jonathan. And Ecclesiastes four, verse 10 says, if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. And it's so interesting throughout the scriptures how often we see God pairing people up putting people together in pairs. Jesus even did this when he sent out the apostles. He sent them out by two. We see Saul ultimately becoming Paul and Barnabas and then Paul and Silas. We see this pairing up. There's some wisdom to that, that you don't go into battle alone, that you look for a, a compadre, that you look for a co-laborer in the gospel. And so here we see David and, and Jonathan. And I really wonder when, when old Solomon the preacher said two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor and if either falls, the one will lift up his companion. I wonder if he was recalling the stories of his father 
David talking about his one-time best friend, Jonathan. It's possible. But these two stand out among the great friendships in all history. David and Jonathan, what a beautiful example. Sadly, that friendship has been twisted by some who, who use it to validate immorality. You know, to rewrite history as it truly stands. But, and I think you will see tonight, there is absolutely nothing sexual about this love. This is a deep brotherly love. This is, this is Aragorn and Boromir, okay? If you saw Lord of the Rings, if you didn't, please go see at least the first one because it's just so cool. But Aragorn and Boromir, and Boromir has just been shot through with dozens of arrows, and he's lying there, and he's about to take his last breath. He dies as, as Aragorn is holding him, and these guys are brothers in arms, and you see the tears on Aragorn's face, and he leans down, and he kisses Boromir on the forehead, and there is nothing about that scene that could be considered in the least homosexual. It is manly, it is brotherly, it is love that is portrayed there. It's one of the reasons why I love that series so much, is they did a really good job of showing love between men that is appropriate and, and even, I would say, uh, approaches godly. David and Jonathan have that kind of love, and look at what Jonathan does here. With great faith, he makes a covenant with David, he strips off his robe, armor, sword, bow, and belt, and he hands it all over to David, why? because the son of King Saul is renouncing his personal right to rule. He right here is saying, I have the lineage of the king, but I will not rule, you will rule, David. He's humbling himself before who should be, would have been, if Jonathan had lived long enough, would have been his liege, his king, his ruler. Why? Why, why would Jonathan do such a thing, abdicate his own? Because, I mean, you know, traditionally, at least with kings like the nations, the king and then his son would step right into his place. And we'll see that with Judah and then even with the kings of Israel. But why is it, what, what, is, what does Jonathan know here? Well, first off, he loved David. I mean, he just did. And, and this, the Bible gives us a picture at first about, boy, he just saw David and he was so impressed and his soul was knit together with the soul of David and he just loved him and he had such deep admiration for him as he saw this young man and found himself bound. So he said, I'm gonna bind myself to him in covenant and I'm gonna give him these things. He must have not only loved David but recognized the anointing that was on David. And thirdly, I think Yanni knew his Bible. I think he knew his Bible. What do you mean? Genesis 49.10 says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him be the obedience of the peoples. The ruling staff, the scepter, is supposed to be in the hands of Judah. Saul, his father, is of Benjamin. Here comes a young man anointed of the tribe of Judah and I think, if I'm not reading too far ahead of this, that, that Jonathan's saying, he's the right king. He's the appropriate one to rule. And by the way, if we, when we recognize the son of David as the rightful king in our lives, we renounce the right to self-rule. That's when we say, I'm no longer gonna be boss of me. I am no longer in charge of my life, he is. He's the king, he's the ruler. What he says goes, his command is, his rule is my command, 
or his command is my, whatever that phrase is, uh, I follow him as he so commands. But the soul man, as we talked about last week, always opposes that kind of selfless submission. Look at verse five. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul sent him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. David's popularity is on the rise. Verse six, it happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with musical instruments. Do you remember when this happened, when Saul routed the Philistines before? Actually, Jonathan's the one who got that ball rolling, but everybody said, hey, yay, Saul, way to go, Saul, and Saul's tooting his own horn. Well, here the women come, and they're singing, and they're playing, and they say, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. <laughs> and this song was number one on the hit parade. I mean, it went straight to number one, right out the gate, and Saul, verse eight, became very angry for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David 10,000s, but to me they've ascribed thousands? Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Do you do the same? Do you ever look at the son of David with suspicion or distrust? Or do you look at the son of David with submission and faith? Now you might say, well, Rick, who, who, who would look at Jesus with suspicion? Anyone who rejects his authority for their own. And any time I say, I know what you say, Jesus, but I think, I know what your word declares, but I want, I am standing in suspicion or rejection of the king who is over my life, who I declared myself submitted to. And, and there are others, Jesus' family, thought, man, he's got this uppity Messiah complex going on. So they're, his brothers, they're suspicious of him, right? The Jewish leaders were threatened by Jesus' popularity. They're suspicious of him. The Romans are watching this guy, and they fear his authority over the people in Judea. They're suspicious of him. And nearly 2,000 years later, we see a culture of people who are suspicious of Jesus such that they call his saving word hate speech. Am I suspicious or submissive when it comes to the son of David? And Jesus said when, when John the Baptist had his concern, had his doubts, Jesus said the blind receive sight, the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then he said this, listen, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Blessed is the person who's not offended by me. Now, why is that? Because the person who's not offended by me is the person who is submitted to me. It's the person who trusts me. And that person is going to live blessed. You know what's offensive to Jesus? Blessed is the person who does not take offense at me. Well, who's the person offended by Jesus? Anyone who stands against the will and the purpose of God. And that could be you or me at any point in our lives where we say, no, I'm not going that way, Lord. No, I'm not doing that, Lord. No, I'm not listening to you. Or maybe we don't even say it out loud, but by our feet, by our behavior, he said, I really would like to see you obey me here. And we go, yeah, no thanks. 
And I have just entered that camp of those who look at Jesus and go, well, I trust you mostly. I don't know. We're suspicious of him anytime we think we know how to run and rule our lives better than he does. The soul man does just that. The soul man, we see this in soul man Saul, but he refuses to step down from self-rule until or unless he recognizes and receives the son of David. When we actually receive Jesus as Lord, we step down from rule. And the soul man takes a hit. And the spiritual man, the spiritual woman begins to emerge in our lives. That's a good thing. We call that being born again, right? But the more the soul fights to secure its own authority, the more insecure and restless the person will be. Watch Saul, verse 10. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God, and we explained and described that on Sunday, so if you didn't hear that, go back and listen to it. An evil spirit from God or a spirit causing distress or a spirit that that brings about destruction from the Lord, from God, came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand, as usual. And a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Verse 12, now Saul was afraid. The word there, afraid, is literally despairing of David. For the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. We talk about how it's very interesting. In Saul's life, there are three times that the Holy Spirit comes upon him mightily. And three situations, or or two at least, that we see where, where Saul prophesies. Right, he prophesied back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, And he's gonna do it again before we're done tonight. We'll see this in chapter 19. He prophesies again. It's amazing. There's a third time he prophesies. And and, and it's right here, and you wouldn't see it unless your translation translates slightly differently when it says that he raved in the midst of the house. The word raved is is yitnabe, yitnabe, which is being under the influence. But nabe, navi, is prophet. The root word here means prophesy. And some translations, I think the the King James translation actually says that uh, Saul prophesied in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp in his hand. And that would be an absolutely legitimate translation. And so we would say in this moment, whoa, is Saul among the prophets? What's interesting is the way the word is written that Yitnabe, yeah, he's prophesying, but he's prophesying in a rage. So this is not good prophecy, or, or perhaps it is. Perhaps it is, but, but note this. He is raving around the house like a mad prophet, and he's got a spear in his hand. David's got a harp, and he's got a spear. What is he prophesying? And I really wonder. We don't know, but I'm gonna take a stab at it. <laughs> spear. <laughs> what if he's prophesying The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. This is a threat to his rule. And it is an ancient prophecy. Maybe that's coming to mind. Maybe he's prophesying, David must rule. David must rule. But he's doing it in a rage and it is driving him mad. And Saul, the mad prophet, raving with a spear, he's holding up a weapon of warfare. David has in his hands a harp, which was an instrument of worship. Weapon of warfare, 
instrument of worship? What do you have in your hands? Would you rather praise the Lord or make your point? And think about what I'm saying. I mean, I know it's kind of punny there with a the point in the spear and all that. Would you rather praise the Lord or push your agenda? What do you have in your hands? See, there's a vacuum in the soul. The soul is looking to be filled. And the soul is either going to suck in the flesh or it's going to yield to the spirit. The soul, which is, you know, and all of this is, as we talked about last week, this is who we are, spirit, soul, body. And the soul wants to be filled. And either we're going to have a spiritual faith in Jesus resulting in a heart of worship or we're gonna have a mindset on the flesh which results in fear, anxiety, anger, turmoil, And this is what we're seeing in the distinction between David and Saul. David, the spiritual man, Saul, the soul man, and the soul man is coming into a rage because he cannot get his hands around what this spiritual man has. At first, he liked it. At first, it soothed and calmed him. But the more he's around it and stays in that place of the soul, the more it makes him angry. The more Saul is upset. Remember, Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That is to huck a spear. I came, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it overflowing. Saul wants to pin David to the wall and the soul man driven by the flesh has that kind of raving, the same kind of raving that called for them to pin Jesus to the cross. Crucify him, crucify him. They said almost as if a madness had descended on this crowd that only days before were saying, Hosanna. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse six, this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious corner, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. See, that's the promise of scripture. Your faith in Jesus will not disappoint. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, that's the soul vacant of faith, vacant of belief, and therefore not spiritual. For those who disbelieve, quote, the stone which the builders rejected became the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Remember, Jesus says, blessed is the one who doesn't take offense at me. But when there is disbelief commanding the soul, as we see in Saul here, we have an offense. And Peter says they stumble, literally they are offended because they are disobedient to the word and to this they were appointed. Someone says, oh, wow, predestined for hell. That's what that says. No, that's not what that says. It says those who disbelieve are disobedient to the word and to this they were appointed. They will stumble, they will be offended. They're appointed to offense. This is the deal. If you disbelieve, you have an appointment with, with offense. You are appointed to, you will be offended. This is what Peter is describing here. It's not that those who disbelieve don't have a choice. Saul still has a choice. In fact, it's obvious in the word disbelieve. Belief and disbelief, that's a choice. So if you choose to disbelieve, then you have an appointment with offense and with stumbling. And Saul is a picture of this. The man is in a prophetic rage because he is standing opposed to the will and purpose of God. 
and he's prophesying it, and, and I think he's saying stuff that he does not even want to hear himself saying, but he can't, he, he's, he's got this prophetic word. And remember, Revelation 19 tells us that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So if someone's prophesying in the scripture, ultimately it's pointing to the son of David. You can't get away from it. Verse 13. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as a commander of his thousand. Just get him out of here and let him fight. And he went out and came in before the people. David was prospering in all his ways before, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David. And he went out and came in before them. And then Saul said to David, here's my older daughter, Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. Saul's a religious man. He is not a believer. He is not spiritual. He's religious. And he will use religious language from time to time, but we see in his very attitude and behavior and actions that he is not a spiritual man. Fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, and here's the insight, my hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. That is Saul's thinking. I'll just keep sending him out to war, and he's gonna get killed. This is how it'll work. This is great. What a great plan. By the way, David eventually is going to send a man to the front lines of battle to be killed. I wonder where he got the idea. Probably from Saul. Saul thinks my hand shall not be against him. Let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Now, note this. Soul man Saul is spiraling out of control. If you just, just track in this chapter, in verse eight, he's angry and displeased. In verse nine, he's suspicious. In verse 10, he's raving. In verse 12, he's afraid and in despair. In verse 15, he is dreading David. See where this is going? It's just going from bad to worse. And the key phrase in this section, in verse 17, is Saul thought. That's what the soul man does. Saul worked this out in his head. Saul figured this, here's the plan. And, and what's the plan? Well, ultimately, he's gonna raise his own hand to try and kill David, but right now he can't. David's way too popular. But there's something he can do here. Give David, why would he give David one of his daughters? Because now he's my son-in-law, and if my son-in-law goes off to battle and is killed, I hope, I hope, I hope, and he's killed in battle, guess what? I'm gonna look so great before the people. My son-in-law David died fighting for the kingdom. I have such a great loss, and, and Saul slides right back into the most important man in Israel. And this is the lunatic's idea. I come out on top. By the way, again, I, and I mentioned this before, this is where it comes into play a bit, that as king, Saul had made a politician's promise. What do you mean a politician's promise? You know what I mean by that. It's how, it's how they get their votes. I will do these things. You vote for me and I'll do this for you. And so Saul said that whoever defeated Goliath would get, again, riches and freedom for his family and the king's own daughter in marriage. So he's offering Merab, because that's, you know, he said he would, but his purpose now in offering her is not because he had made the promise, it's because he can get something out of it for himself. So <laughs> vote Saul. Now he's playing a dangerous game, verse 18. David said to Saul, oh, I love David. Who am I? Who am I 
And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? And we made this point Sunday, David is so humble. The spiritual man is humble. The spiritual woman is the first to say, who am I to do that? Why? You know, not that they're not willing. The spiritual person is willing, but the spiritual person also knows when they're called upon, they're the last one to think that they're qualified for it. Me? You want me? Really? Why would you want me to do it? They will say to him in that day, when did we see you sick and tend to you? When did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you in prison and visit you? And as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And that's the thing about the righteous person, the spiritual person. They don't even really, they don't recognize the greatness of what they're doing. They're just serving the Lord. And here, David, who am I? Who, who am I that, that, that I should get your daughter? And so it came about at that time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David that she was given to Adriel the Maholatite for a wife. You guys all remember Adriel the Maholatite? Yeah, me either. Verse 20, now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. They, by the way, isn't, isn't David and Michal. In fact, I hate to say it, but I'm not sure David ever loved Michal. I think she, and did she ever really love it? It says she loved him, but I think her love was probably more an infatuation, hero worship kind of thing, you know. David, David, he's my man. And so she wants to be with him, and, and so they told Saul they would be Saul's servants. Said, hey, here's what's going on over here. And he's like, ah, oh, that's a good idea. We'll go, with, we'll go with her. And Saul thought, verse 21, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him. Little did Saul know that she would become a snare to him. And that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David, for a second time, you may be my son-in-law today. I'm giving you another chance here, son. And then Saul commanded his servants, speak to David secretly, saying, behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David, but David said, is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed, I mean, this guy is dripping with humility. He just doesn't think that he's of that kind of value. He, he'll serve the Lord. He'll kill giants. He'll do whatever he has to do for Israel, but, but not for himself. I love David. The servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Yes, it says foreskins. <laughs> to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. He's still thinking, I gotta get this man out to battle, and here's what I want for a daughter. I don't want you to pay any dowry. I don't want any money. I don't want, you know, I know you're poor. That's fine. Just bring me 100 foreskins. Why? That's kind of just like, really? Why? Who? Why? These uncircumcised Philistines. So the enemy, everyone round about were uncircumcised. It was only Israel that were circumcised. And in, in Jewish thinking, that's righteous. These are the ones who are pure before God. These are the covenant people. And these Philistines are uncircumcised. And so, you know, we're gonna take care of that. Gonna kill them and then bring the foreskins to Saul. Well, 
David's going to be okay with that, but, but the, the amazing thing here is that the raving soul man does not understand the humble spiritual man. And it, and it is that way in our culture. The soul man does not get the power of the Holy Spirit in and upon the spiritual man, that the power of the Holy Spirit is not about pride. It is not about showiness. It is not about saying, check me out how righteous I am. That's not the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the soul in the flesh that speaks. Power of the Holy Spirit causes one to desire more than anything else to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, these things. That the spiritual man, the spiritual woman is naturally going to be humbled by the very presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. Soul man doesn't get this. Now, you might say, didn't Saul have the Spirit upon him at one point, so wouldn't he have some understanding of the Holy Spirit? Yes and no. He had the might and the power of the Spirit, but he never made a decision. He never slipped into trust. He never went the spiritual route. He had the power of the Spirit, but the soul without faith is a dangerous thing in the church. The soul without faith doesn't get doesn't accept, in fact, often rejects spiritual power. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us clearly, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised, spiritually discerned, spiritually judged or understood. So in verse 26, when his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law before the days had expired. So you got a time limit on this, David. Come back and, and give me an answer, right? So David rose up and went. And why did it please David? Because he could serve Israel. Okay, so it really isn't about the woman, but boy, if I, in the service of the king, in the service of Israel, and in taking out the enemies of God, these uncircumcised Philistines, and bringing the foreskins, okay, I'll, I'll do that. So David went, rose up, and he and his men, they struck down 200 men among the Philistines, so double the request. And then David brought their foreskins and gave them in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as a wife. And I don't know who the guy was counting the foreskins. <laughs> And so when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. And thus Saul was David's enemy continually. And this is where it's landed. All this fear, all this despair, all this anger, all this, this, you know, this loathing, this, this developing, this bitterness inside of Saul, he becomes, in his mind, an enemy to David for the rest of his life. By the way, David will only be a friend to Saul for the rest of his life. But Saul becomes the enemy. Verse 30, then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. More wisely in the Hebrew, more insightfully. David had insight. Why? He's the spiritual man. He's a man upon whom the power of the Spirit, the might of the Spirit is resting, but he's also a man who is choosing to be spiritual before the Lord. David was spiritual before the Holy Spirit came upon him. 
David had faith. In fact, David, again, was Saul's most trustworthy and faithful friend and servant throughout his whole life. We'll see this over and over as Saul keeps trying to murder David. David's response is always, is always honor to the king. And when he even messes around just a little bit, cuts off the edge of the king's robe, it's a great teaching. When he does that, he feels bad because he recognizes Saul is still the anointed of the Lord. This is a spiritual man who's reading things in a spiritual way and he's looking at his life from a humble position. Saul, however, is viewing him now as personal enemy number one. Why? Again, because David had what Saul could not get. David had what nobody can get without faith. It's why people turn on friends and family who start really trusting in the Lord. It's why, honestly, in, in some of our families and among some of our friends, the more faith we show in the Lord, the more we follow after Jesus, the more uncomfortable they get around us. It's not because we're all that, but it's convicting. And, and you know what? The soul man sees, the soul woman sees there's something going on there. Oftentimes, it ends up being something I want, Right, Les, I mean, Les had, uh, what was the name of the woman in, in yours and Donna's life that, that you, Linda, because I've heard you say this many times, I saw what Linda had and I wanted that. What does she have? Holy Spirit. I wanted that. Les had religion. He wanted the truth, right? And, and that can happen, but the converse can happen as well. Someone can see what you have and say, I don't want that. That convicts my lifestyle. That challenges the way I want to self-rule. And that's what we see with Saul and David, though David loves Saul and, and, and is faithful and trustworthy to Saul. Saul is his enemy. Paul puts it really well. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, we're a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma the perishing, that is, from death to death, and to the other, an aroma from life to life. And who's adequate for these things? I love that Paul says that. Who's up to this? Not me, not you. This is not because of us. This is not because of our value or worth or greatness. Who's adequate for these things? We are not like many peddling the word of God, but from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. And so what Paul so beautifully describes there is to the saved, we recall. You know how, you know how um, smell is such a powerful mnemonic device? That is a, a memory device. You smell something and it just brings up memory like that. Of all of our senses, smell is the greatest rememberer sense. And people will either recall the sweet aroma of life, the saved. When you get around Christians, I had a guy come to my house today uh, from ADT uh, doing a home security thing, and we were talking about you know, what, what they could offer, and, and we're walking around, and we just hit it off, and we're just getting along. And I finally, we get back behind the house, and we're talking about the windows and where the stuff has to go, and I go, are you a believer? And he goes, yeah, I am. And I go, I thought so. And, and, you know, but there was a sweet aroma. There was something between the two of us that was just like, this just smells right. And I don't even know what kind of aftershave he uses or anything, you know, but it just, it was a sweet aroma of life. But to those perishing, we will prompt the fearful stench of death. David is prompting the fear and the stench of death. 
whenever he's around Saul and it's driving Saul nuts. Chapter 19, verse one. Now, Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. Now it's, very, now it's not just, we're gonna stick him in battle and hopefully the Philistines will get him. Now he's commanding his crew, his henchmen, kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide myself. Saul's spiral, man, is just, it's continuing downward. Every attempt to rid himself of David is not working, and so finally he puts a hit out on him. Jonathan tells David about this. Go hide yourself. I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I'll speak with my father about you. And if I find out anything, then I will tell you. This is what best buds do. You know, they have a little secret plan, right? This won't be the first one with these two. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. He took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Well, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. It's a religious vow, and those are easily broken. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, for he was in his presence as formerly. Ah, oh, Jonathan, the peacemaker. What a great friend. You know, come on, we'll, we'll make this right. He talks his dad into it. He is David's advocate. And we have such an advocate, such a friend. My little children, 1 John chapter 2, verse one, John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Listen, if Jonathan is a great friend by bringing an innocent man back to his father. How much better is Jesus a friend by bringing sinful people back to his father? This is what Jesus does. You'll never find a better friend or advocate. When there was war again, verse eight, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. This is just not a good thing. I, remove the spears from Saul's presence, right? And David was playing the harp with his hand. By the way, in Israel in those days, um, I, I think the, the big political fight was spear control. Just saying. Verse 10. Verse 10, Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he struck, stuck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. It's just amazing. David, they, Saul tries to pierce him numbers of times, and the son of David is gonna be pierced. These parallels between David and son of David are phenomenal. What do you do? What do you do when the spears start flying? You know, when you're in that place and people are firing off sharp words at you or they're angry with you or they're upset with you, and, and really, I think we got one of two options here. Someone chucks a spear at you, you can take up a spear and fling it back. We call that 
retribution, vengeance. You know, you throw a spear at me, I throw a spear at you. I will punch back. A little vengeance never hurt anybody, right? Payback. Romans 12, 19, never take your own revenge. If you want to look up the Greek word for never, I think you'll find that that's a good translation. <laughs> never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So you can take up the spear that someone has thrown at you and you can fling it back and you can fight fire with fire or, or what you can do instead is take up a song of praise. Take up a song of praise. In the coming chapters of David's life, anyone have a guess how many psalms he wrote? Well, there, there's 150 psalms, but here are the exact, I'll give you the exact psalms if you wanna jot these down. I didn't list them up here. These are the exact psalms we know for a fact that David wrote while on the run from Saul. Here they are. Psalm 18, Psalm 34, Psalm 52, Psalm 54, Psalm 57, Psalm 59, Psalm 63, Psalm 124, Psalm 138, Psalm 142. 10 Psalms, one for each of the years that, Jesus, that David is on the run from Saul. 10 songs about this very situation. You could throw the spear back at your attacker or you can take up a song of praise. I want you to hear one. Turn in your Bibles over to Psalm 59 for a moment. Psalm 59, you need to see this and read this with me. A beautiful psalm, an awesome psalm, a new favorite of mine. I was quoting it to Jake yesterday. <laughs> Great psalm. How do you pray when you're under attack? This psalm is a great answer to that question. And by the way, if you're going, okay, wait, this is 1 Samuel 18 through 20. That's 18, 19, 20. That's three chapters. No, it's not. It's really not. It's actually four because we're doing Psalm 59 too. Listen to this. Psalm 59. First of all, look at the, the instruction, which is in Hebrew, and it comes before the psalm for the choir director set to all tasheth. Al-Tasheth is a, we think it was a song. It was a melody that he wrote the words to, Al-Tasheth. And Al-Tasheth means do not destroy, which is very ironic with this psalm. Put it to the music of do not destroy, a miktam of David, note this, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. This is exactly what happens. David flees from the presence of Saul. And we will see what Saul's next move is to send these guys, messengers, to his house. That happens in verse 11. So this is the psalm that David wrote in 1 Samuel 19. While this night, while the spear throwing has happened and he races back to his house and now his house is gonna be surrounded by Saul's henchmen, David sits down and rather than fighting back and shouting what a jerk Saul is out the window, he writes a song and this is it. Deliver me from my enemies, O oh my God. Set me securely on high, away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. Behold, they've set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression nor for my sin, O oh Lord. For no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. 
Arouse yourself to help me and see, for you, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Hang on a second, note this. The word punish is not punish, it's visit. It's visit. Now, the reason why the translators put punish there is this is what you would call an imprecatory psalm, which means it's a psalm where you're calling down, you're asking the Lord to take vengeance that he promised to take. But the word here at this point is awake to visit all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. Now, stop right there for a second because David writes Selah, so we're gonna pause. Do you ever pray that? Oh, Lord Jesus, please do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in sin. Do you realize that that is a legitimate intercession? Don't show grace to someone who's treacherous. In fact, let them feel the weight of it. I, you know, we've been talking about this whole idea of intercessory prayer lately, and I, 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 hope, I hope you're getting what I'm saying. What I'm seeing in this myself is that a, a huge part of intercessory prayer really is interceding such that someone does come to the end of themselves, such that things do not work out well for them. We think, oh, in Jesus, I'm supposed to be always nice. Not necessarily. If your niceness is gonna allow someone to continue on and sin straight into the gates of hell, don't be nice. Instead, perhaps you need to challenge the thinking and pray that God will pull the rug out from under those who are treacherous in their sin, whether it's against you or anybody else. Father, show this to them. It's not because you wanna do anybody harm, but you'd rather that there be some mess, some destruction, maybe a spirit of destruction from the Lord in a person's life, and they get saved than to be all flowery and nice, and they end up condemned. So David says, do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. And then he starts to describe them. This is my favorite part of the psalm. They return at evening. They howl or growl like a dog and go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. For they say, who hears? You know the spitefulness in that? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all the nations. Because of his strength, I will watch for you. His strength, the enemy's strength. Because of his strength, I'm gonna watch for you. Not I'm gonna fight back. Not I'm gonna pick up his spears. I'm gonna watch for you. For God is my stronghold. My God in his loving kindness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Do not slay them or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power. Bring them down, O Lord, our shield. O Lord, our shield. Ephesians chapter six, verse 16 talks about taking up the shield of faith. That's what David's doing in this song, this prayer, this psalm. On account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them be caught in their pride on account of curses and lies which they utter. And then ironically in verse 13, destroy in wrath, destroy that they may be no more. So David's getting worked up here. And remember, this is set to the tune of do not destroy. <laughs> but now David said, no, destroy in wrath, that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. And he goes back to this theme. They return at evening, they howl or growl like a dog and go around the city. They wander about for food and growl if they are not satisfied. But as for me, 
As for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. When's he writing this? At night. For you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. How does he end there when he just has come out of saying, destroy them, Lord. They're dogs, they're voracious, they're coming after me, destroy them, Lord. And then he ends up in this place of faith. Why? Because he's speaking words of faith to the Lord. He's not talking in his head. He's praying to the Lord. He's talking out all of his, you know, uh, all of his own personal anger at being attacked like this, and he's talking out. David is so good in the Psalms to do this. He's talking out with the Lord what's going on. See, the soul man talks in the head. Soul man just sits there, you know, raving. You ever done that? Are you the person? I, I, I'm not saying that I am. <laughs> but have you ever been driving down the road raging at someone? talking as if they're in the car because, well, I'm gonna tell them something. They're not gonna listen. I'm gonna say it anyway right now. You're not gonna say in their name and you're just going off on them. And that's the soul man, the soul woman. That's when we're working it all out and we're frustrated and stressing in our heads. The spiritual person takes it to the Lord. What? What, even the frustration? Yeah, yeah. You pray openly and honestly to the Lord. You are praying to the Lord who is your shield. You're taking up the shield of faith and you're gonna find as you take these things before the Lord, you will, like David, end up in praise and in peace. Oh, my strength, I'll sing praises to you. He ends up with this great worship song at the end. Now, Alex, I don't think it'd be a good idea for us to be singing, they return at evening like in the howl like a dog. You know, I mean, that just wouldn't be a good worship song. But David is worshiping and praising, and he will throughout the next decade of his life. Well, go back to 1 Samuel 19 and pick up in verse 11. David is writing this psalm concurrently with what we're reading in this story. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him, put him to death in the morning. And he pens a psalm, and he's praying to the Lord. But Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michal let David down through a window and he went out and fled and escaped. Michal took the household idol, ooh, what's a household idol, a teraphim, what's that doing at David's house? Michal is gonna be a snare. I think she brought it. But it's also just bizarre that we see this kind of thing as a typical thing in the house of, of Israel. And it's big enough, she took the household idol, laid it on the bed, put a quilt of goat's hair at its head, and covered it with clothes. She's not doing this to, to play hooky from school. Not saying that I did. <laughs> but when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. And then Saul said, uh, bring him up to me on his bed that I may put him to death. Okay, then haul him out of there. I'll kill him myself. See where Saul's gone? When the messengers entered, and behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal said to Saul, well, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? In other words, he threatened me, daddy. And of course, that works. You know, anytime a daughter says, he threatened me, daddy, well, then, then daddy's gonna go, oh, okay, well, you're fine. David is gonna now be threatened and on the run for the rest of Saul's life. But watch what happens. 
This is bizarre. David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him, and he and Samuel went and stayed in Naot. It was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naot in Ramah. Now, Naot in Ramah, that's, is that like two city names, a city within a city, or is that like a town? What, what is that? Naot simply means dwellings or compound. Naot, so it's a, a plural, it's, it's, it's dwellings together. And what we think is going on here is this is Samuel's school of prophecy. It's in the city of Ramah, but it's dwellings in the city where a group of prophets live and are being trained by Samuel. So these are basically the prophetic dorms, okay? Dorm rooms. Naot at Ramah, in verse 20, Saul then sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. I love this. Verse 21, it was told Saul, so he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. This is just a great retreat. You know, everybody's showing up is getting caught up in the prophecy and involved in all that's going on here. It's hilarious. Well, then he himself went to Ramah. He came as far as the large well that is in Seku, which, which means watchtower, and he asked them and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, behold, they're at Naot in Ramah. He proceeded there to Naot in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. Wait a minute, remember this. The Holy Spirit had left Saul. He was now void of the Spirit, but the Spirit comes on him here so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naot in Ramah. Now everybody's prophesying. What is going on here? Saul sends assassins who now become prophets. They join the praise chorus. You know, this happens three times, and every time they become prophets, Saul goes, same thing happens again. And verse 24, he also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Which they said back in chapter 10, too. Is Saul among the prophets? This is like a replay. It's fascinating. Now, let me explain verse 24. Most uh, scholars believe that the stripping wasn't a stripping to nudity. It's that he was stripping himself of his armor and his royal robes, and he still would have a linen garment on, but it was a very humbling moment of divine exposure. He's before the Lord in the presence of the prophets, and Saul, who was raging and raving in his house in prophecy, now is among the prophets, and he's prophesying, and he's laying down, and he's prophesying all day long, and, and he is just overcome in this moment. A couple of things are happening here. First off, Saul and his henchmen are not, as some suggest, slain in the spirit. They are more detained in the spirit. Or, or we could say restrained by the Spirit. Because what's going on, think about this, David is now protected while Saul is protracted. David hightails it out of there. As we'll see at the beginning of chapter 20, David fled from Naot and Ramah. So he takes off. David hightails it. Saul is halted and humbled and all of this is happening simultaneously. God's protecting David and getting him out while he's 
calling Saul and his henchmen into this place of prophesying. See, God has no trouble walking and chewing gum at the same time. You know, he can accomplish more than one thing. This is remarkable, and it's another reminder that I'm seeing here in Samuel. God will sometimes be doing something that is causing difficulty in one person's life, but is also allowing something else to happen in another person's life. He is not as, you know, one person as, as we think. Oh, he is intimately concerned with you, but while he's caring for you, and this is what makes him God and us not, but while he's caring for you, he also has care and concern for everyone around you, and sometimes what's happening to you is for somebody else. Or what's happening to them is for you and others, and there's this God has this way of, it's like weaving a tapestry in humanity as he tends to people's lives. So right here, he is tending to David. Get out of there, run, David. And he is tending to Saul. I wouldn't have. But as David flees, Saul is fed. Why? One more time, God pours the spirit out on Saul. One more time, God gives the voice of prophecy among the prophets to Saul. Why? Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I love it because we're in, in our meeting this morning and, and I, I said, what do you guys think is going on? And Jake said, I think God's giving Saul one more taste. And I'm like, that's in my notes. <laughs> taste and see that the Lord is good. Saul has now had the Holy Spirit residing within him. And Saul has now lost the spirit and had a replacement of a spirit of disaster. And now, once again, Saul has the spirit, at least for the day. See what God's doing? Taste and see. Taste and see, Saul. I was with you. I was not, and it was not good. And I'm with you again. Do you see what life is like if you will choose to be the spiritual man? God is so remarkably patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish, right? But for all to come to repentance, that's the heart of God. So again, he's giving Saul opportunity. And we've talked about this like Judas. Judas, who was called to be an apostle. Judas, a betrayer. Jesus knew what was gonna happen. Why'd he call him? Oh, so he could keep him close so he could do his job? No, because Jesus wanted to give Judas every chance possible to repent and not follow through. He brought the betrayer closer to him than just about anyone else in history so that Judas could have full revelation of who Jesus is and make a right choice. And we see this over and over. We see Jesus dip and give to Judas and say, here you go, you are my honored one at this last meal. You're the honored one. That's what they were, you dip and give to another. It's a sign of friendship. We see in the garden, what is the last thing that Jesus calls Judas Friend, friend, what have you come for? Judas stays in the soul and follows through. This is the heart of God. This is the pattern we see God coming after people again and again. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're one who felt like at one time, boy, I was walking in the spirit and then I was empty and void and I was all up in my head and it, it was a long time, but now, but now I feel like I'm tasting and, and I can see the Lord again. Why? It's not because you've earned it. It's because God is gracious. He is gracious to you and he is giving you yet another taste. 
soul man has every opportunity to taste the spiritual and choose. Real quick question, can someone have such a deeply spiritual experience and not be saved? Balaam was a soul man prophet. He prophesied the words of God over Israel. He spoke blessing over Israel. He said some amazing things. He says, I see him, but not now. A star will rise from Jacob. Speaking prophetically of Jesus. Wow. Was Balaam saved? I don't know, ask his donkey. <laughs> Jesus said, many are gonna say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and in your name perform many miracles and do all kinds of really impressive religious stuff. And I will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. If you're not practicing righteousness, you don't know Jesus. And what about Hebrews chapter six, verse four? People love this verse. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good work of God and the powers of the age have come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. And we always struggle with that because we think, oh, that's talking about a Christian who's fallen away. Maybe not. Maybe not. The, the, the word fallen away there isn't the word you think. The, the word in the, in the Greek is, it, it means turn aside. And read that way, the person who has had a moment of enlightenment and tasted and has seen that God is good and then turned aside? Listen, this is the, the, the one thing, the one thing that saves you, the one thing that saves me is not my spiritual experience. It's faith. All manner of people have spiritual experiences, have profound encounters with the Lord. Maybe, uh, you know, a non-believer will go off on a, on a retreat with a friend and through the weekend just have a life-changing, wonderful blessing of an experience and go home, but they never come to faith. And they turn away. And here's Saul. Opportunity after opportunity after opportunity Will you taste and see that the Lord is good? You can taste and see, but it goes one step beyond. Are you going to taste and see and trust? Or are you gonna taste and see and have faith? Because that's what saves. I call this dogged grace. Dogged grace. And I'm thinking of that, that old poem, perhaps you've heard it. I wanna read just a part of it to you. It's so amazing. It's called The Hound of Heaven. 1890 by Francis Thompson, he wrote, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter, up visited hopes I sped and shot, precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, Deliberate speed, majestic instancy, 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 they beat. And a voice beat more instant than the feet. And then he's quoting now the voice of the hound of heaven. All things betray thee who betrayest me. Alack, thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art. Whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee save me? save only me. All which I took from thee, I did but take, not for thy harms, 
but just that thou mightest seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies as lost, I have stored up for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. God just chasing you down. And here, chasing down Saul. The Bible calls the Lord he who searches the hearts. Romans 8, 27. Or John 16, 8. When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. What? God's gonna send his spirit to convict so people will feel bad? No, so they'll get saved. The hound of heaven chasing us down. Soul man Saul rejected his king, but not as a son. He's rejected as king of Israel. God says, I'm gonna tear the kingdom from you. That's done, that's over. But he never says, I reject you as a child. I reject you as a son. So he keeps coming after Saul if Saul would just trust what he had tasted. Does he ever? I don't know. But I do know, as we saw in chapter 16, verse seven, that the Lord looks at the heart. So whether we see outward evidence in the life of Saul or not, you know, we can debate that. But God looks at the heart. And if God sees in the heart of Saul at any point a man who turns to him in trust, even in the last moment on the battlefield, then yeah, Saul would be saved. Is he? I don't know. It doesn't look good, but I don't know. (laughs) Chapter 20, verse one. We're gonna finish up. Don't you love when I say that? Chapter 20, verse one. It's important, we need, to, we need to follow through on this, so stay with me just a few more minutes. Then David fled from Nyot in Ramah, and he came and he said to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? He said to him, far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Come on, David. Nah, this is it's not a big deal. You're, you're, you're making a mountain out of a molehill here, right? Verse three, yet David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this or he will be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is a hardly a step between me and death. David is shaken, all right? He is scared to death. He feels like one wrong turn and he's gonna be run through and he is very frightened as the Lord lives. This is such a profound statement. As the Lord lives, there's hardly a step between me and death. Psalm 39, verse four, David will write, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as, as handbreadths and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Moses wrote in Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. What David says here is is remarkable, hardly a step between me and death. We need to live that way. We need to understand that. There is hardly a step between me and death. 
We don't know when, we don't know how. We all pray for the rapture of the church, but when some of us may go before then. Not me, but some of you may, actually, I'm kidding. Some of us may die prior to the church alive at that time being caught up. Of course, we'll be caught up first, so that's a good deal. We need to understand this. To do, to do so much physically, financially, medically, that we might live a long life on the earth while ignorantly, ign- while ignoring eternity? I mean, how many people do that? So focused on the retirement, well, that's great. What if you don't get there? What's all that money gonna mean for you if you die in a car accident or of a disease? Or so- I, am, I, am, I am less than a step away from death. And I'm not saying that to be bummed out or depressed, but the most foolish thing that we can do as human beings is make all kinds of plans for a long life here and ignore eternity. Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Not a good retirement. And I'm not opposed to a good retirement. If you're in retirement, God bless you. That's great. Use it for him. But we are all but a breath away from death. Yanni is like, yeah, that's last week's news. And so he is shocked to hear what's really going on. Verse four, then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. What a friend. So David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon. I ought to sit down and eat with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third evening. If your father misses me at all, Then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, because it's the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. If he says, oh, it's good, then your servant will be safe. If he is very angry, know that he has decided on evil. This is David's barometer of Saul's temperament. I wanna test this out. I'm not gonna show up, show up for the new moon feast. New moon, every beginning of the month, that first sliver, first sighting of the moon, it's called the new moon in Israel, and they would have a feast every first of the month, starting off the month that way. And some of those new moons were even bigger festivals. But so the king would gather and all the people would come and, and you had a responsibility to be at the feast of the king, be at table. David says, I'm gonna miss it. You tell him I went to Bethlehem. Let's see how he reacts to that. Therefore, verse eight, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. David's now calling on the covenant. If there is iniquity in me, put me to death yourself, for why then should you bring me to your father? Wow, again, the heart of David. If I'm sinning here, if I'm in the wrong, and that becomes realized, and I don't even know it, then kill me. I want you to take my life. Jonathan, stunning, verse nine. Jonathan said, far be it from you. For if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? In other words, how is this gonna work? Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there is good feeling toward David, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been 
with my father. Jonathan's playing a dangerous game. He's walking a fine line between his dear friend and his own dad. He says in verse 14, if I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever. This is Jonathan's one condition. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, a new covenant now in addition to their friendship covenant. And the new one is saying, may the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Does that sound like sexual love? Not even close. To love someone as your own life? This is unconditional, agape love. This is the kind of love that is grown in the heart of the spiritual person. And this is what Jonathan and David have for each other, this deep, spiritual, unconditional, agape love that enters them back into covenant. Show grace to my house, David. As I love you and as you love me, as we love our own selves, Verse 18, then Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. When you have stayed for three days, you shall go down quickly and come to the place where you hid yourself on that eventful day and you shall remain by the stone at Zell. The stone at Zell is also the stone Eben or Ebenezer, which we've seen before means stone of help. But it's a mound, it's a, it's a location known to David and Jonathan. And I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And behold, I will send the lad saying, go find the arrows. Now, if I specifically say to the lad, behold, the arrows are on this side of you, get them, then come for there is safety for you and no harm as the Lord lives. But if I say to the youth, behold, the arrows are beyond you, then go for the Lord has sent you away. As for the agreement of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Our covenant is an everlasting covenant between the house of David and the house of Jonathan. So David hid in the field. When the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as usual, the seat by the wall, and then Jonathan rose up and Abner sat down by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not speak any that, anything that day for he thought, that's an accident. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. Religious Saul, man of religion, the soul man. Yeah, he's, he's just unclean. Came about the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse, he can't even say his name now, why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal either yesterday or today? It's, you know, it's just crazy. He's been trying to kill him. Would you go to dinner with someone who's trying to kill you? And yet this is, this is the insanity. Where is he? Jonathan then answered Saul. Oh, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem, for he said, please let me go since our family has a sacrifice in the city. My brother's commanded me to attend. And, and by the way, that may be true. You know, someone says, oh, David created a lie there. No, maybe not. He may have been invited. And he's just saying, well, let's use that as my excuse. But the, command, the brothers commanded me to attend. And now if I have found favor in your sight, please let me get away that I may see my brothers. For this reason is not come to the king's table. Saul's reaction. Verse 30, Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. You can translate that. 
Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? Man, this guy is just nasty. As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send him, bring him to me, for he must surely die. Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. The barometer just shot off the charts. And Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. Here's this old man from suspicion to anger, to acrid jealousy, to murderous intentions. Saul's hatred of David causes him even to try to kill his own son, Jonathan. This is how insane he is. But now Jonathan knows, right? By the way, a vengeful heart will always come home to roost. It will always affect your family. You start getting in an acrimonious relationship with someone at work and bitterness there, it's gonna bleed over to your family. It's gonna hurt your kids, it's gonna hurt your spouse, it's gonna carry over. This is why faith and the spiritual man, the spiritual woman is so vital that we live by God's standard of loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. Not picking up the spear, but picking up a psalm of praise if we're indeed in a dangerous position. Verse 35, now it came about in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field for the appointment with David and a little lad was with him. He said to his lad, run, find the arrows now which I'm about to shoot. And as the lad was running, he shot an arrow past him. I don't think I'd wanna be the lad, you know. <laughs> and when the lad reached the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the lad and said, is not the arrow beyond you? Which was the warning. And Jonathan called after the lad, hurry, be quick, do not stay. And Jonathan's lad picked up the arrow and came to his master. But the lad was not aware of anything. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter. And Jonathan gave him his weapons, gave his weapons to the lad and said, go bring them to the city. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. Now listen, some people say, see, this is why this isn't true because they set up this whole scenario so David could flee and then Jonathan just goes and talks to him anyway. Well, that's dumb. No, that's humanity. <laughs> that's life. Yeah, they set up this, this code so that David could know he needed to hightail it out of there. But when the, the moment came for David to flee, both David and Jonathan had to see each other one more time. They had to get face to face. David falls before him and bows to the ground, it says. And they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the more. And Jonathan said to David, go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord will be between me and you, between my descendants and your descendants forever. And then he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. And David and Jonathan will never see each other again. But their beloved friendship is historic. <laughs> Jonathan is the dearest friend at least in terms of the Bible, the dearest friend that David will ever have. 
And when David finally learns of his dear friend Jonathan's death, he sits down and like David often does, whether in crisis or in grief, he writes a psalm. He writes a song, a lament, he sings it. Here's a taste of it, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. He does not say, your love for me was like the love of women. Or your love for me was in the place of love for women. He says, your love was more wonderful. And only a carnal mind can twist that into something sexual. There is a better love. Even in the Greek mentality, you know, the Greek has the four loves. And there is sexual love, eros, but it is not the highest love. And there is friendship love, phileo, which is not the highest love. There is parental love called storge, and it is not the highest love, agape. Agape is a more wonderful love than any, even the love between a man and a woman. For the love, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the agape of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf, which means I love you as I love my own life. It means he died for me, so I will die for him, which means dying for others as well. That's agape. It is a love more fierce, more firm, and more faithful than any other love. That's the love of David and Jonathan, a love that puts the other first. And it is the love of Christ for you who said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do what I command you. Wait, if Jesus loves us with agape love and he says we're his friends, if, isn't that conditional? No, 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 you misunderstand. Jesus says you are my friends if you do what I command you. In other words, as we walk out the commands of Jesus, we show that friendship. We show that love. We don't do his commands to prove that we're his friends, we're his friends. Therefore, of course, we're gonna do what he says. Of course, we're gonna follow his commands. That, that's, these are the footsteps of the friends of Jesus. And it's a love that is not centered on the flesh or the soul. It's a love centered on Jesus, the word made flesh. And it's the love of a spiritual man or woman. And Father, that's the love that we desire. It's the love that we need. And Lord, I, I just ask that you will continue to call us out of the soul and into the spirit and that we will be a spiritual people, that our bent will not be harm or disaster for others, but love. And Lord, even in praying, imprecatory or intercessional uh, prayers, Lord, even when praying that you would uh, take a person to the end of themselves, that we would never do that out of spite or vengeance, but only when love requires it, only when it is the heart of Jesus within us. So I pray, Lord, you will teach us, even as we've seen David and Jonathan tonight, to have that kind of 
covenant love between us, that kind of agape. Teach us these things, Father, and may we, Lord Jesus, accept your command to love one another as you have loved us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.